This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. In just four years, the Launchpad has helped 216 writers get signed, 68 projects get set up, 35 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all one word, all capitals, to receive $15 off your next purchase with the Tracking Board. To check out their current and upcoming competitions, visit tblaunchpad.com and see how the Launchpad can jumpstart your professional writing career. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about breaking into and writing for TV and film from outside the system with a very special guest, writer slash producer and host of the Screenwriters Rent Room, Hilliard Guess. What's up, y'all? What's up? What's up? What's up? <laughs> Welcome. Very glad to have you. It's about to get real ghetto on here. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, just a quick disclaimer about this episode. Uh, unfortunately, we had a little bit of noise on the line. Something's wrong with one of the cables. And uh, we also wanted to warn you that Alex's upstairs neighbor did a little bit of impromptu construction work. Special guest stars in the episode. <laughs> so if you hear any banging or buzzing, we apologize. We did our best to minimize it. Um, but there might be a little bit there. So on with the show. So how did you get your start? And what made you want to work in film and television? I grew up... As a military brat, we moved around quite a bit, and we ended up in the Bay Area outside of San Francisco. And I grew up in a neighborhood in Palo Alto. Now, whenever I say Palo Alto, people are like, oh, cool, Palo Alto. I'm like, no, the east side. (laughs) (laughs) And the east side, if you guys remember the movie Dangerous Minds. Dangerous Minds was where my high school was, the high school in the area there. So you see, I grew up in a real gang-infested area. So during the early 80s, because I'm much older than you young chaps, (laughs) <laughs> uh, it was, everybody was breakdancing. So that was the to do. <clears throat> so in my neighborhood, which was a blood neighborhood, we all were breakdancers. So we were a crew. And what happened was I could sing and dance like naturally all the time. <clears throat> and my mom used to always say, God, I wish you would do something else. All you do is hang out on the corner, breakdancing, you know, making money, whatever. Long story short, one day I was in on the white sides, what we call it, downtown by Stanford. And we were breakdancing for money. And I had to go to the bathroom. The closest bathroom that I could go to was at this little professional children's theater. So I used to always pop in there, use the bathroom, and walk the out. I went in there one day, and I popped my head in, and they were having auditions for Free to Be You and Me. And I walked in, and they're like, oh, you heard an audition. I was like, well, what's that? <laughs> and they're like, oh, you have to sing and dance. I was like, well, that's it. <laughs> you know, I've been doing that. So i never forget, you remember... Children's theater is like one step, two step. There's no real spins. There's no real kicks. There's no real that. So I was adding shit. <laughs> <laughs> I was doing they were like, oh my God, we're putting him in the front. So I got cast and I ended up being at this theater from the time I was 12 to about the time I was 15. I'd done every musical there. I probably, I think I was there maybe two months out of the, out of the year when I wasn't doing a show. So instead of hanging out on the corners with my homeboys, I started hanging out with them. And started doing, I got just engrossed in theater. That's kind of how I got my start in the industry. And by the time I was in high school, when I was 15, 14, 15, um, I started doing theater there too. And somebody saw me in a play and cast me in a little movie that ended up being all over my high school. One of those educational ones, Hmm. but it was a pretty decent one because I was in it. (laughs) (laughs) Played like a cool dude. Now, back in the early 80s, I grew up in a whole mod punk rock scene too. So I went from hanging around the gang members and breakdancing to hanging around all the punks and the mods. And so 
my style was very out there. So I would, you know, own the only brothers around town dressed and riding old scooters and, and suits and shit. So I stood out. I got this role in this movie and they started playing it at school. So I became kind of popular like that. So that's how I got in, if that makes any sense. A few years later, fast forward, I moved to L.A. to become an actor and started, you know, getting a bunch of different roles, which is what I came here for. And I was working on, on a film with a friend of mine who's a really big line producer. And we went to lunch one day to Joffrey's. And on our way there, he's drive, we're driving on the 10 freeway out to Malibu, and he's on the phone with this Oscar-winning star. And we almost get into three accidents because he's trying to drive and write at the same time. So I'm like, give me the phone. He's like, no way. This is such and such. I'm like, I don't care. I'm used to talking to movies. So it doesn't bother me. So he gives me the phone and I start going. I say, hey, girl, what you need? And I just start jotting down things. So by the time we get to Joffrey's, he looks at me across at lunchtime and he says, you want to go with me, Utah? I was like, well, what's there? And he's <laughs> like, I'm about to produce this movie. Why don't you come be my assistant? I was like, oh, okay, cool. So I go to Utah for a month. And little did I know, this is something I was telling young filmmakers and writers all the time. You have to learn to say yes. Now, I was thinking I was an actor. What am I going there for? But I learned a long time ago, try something. So I was like, okay, I'll go. So we, we got to Utah and I got to see how a top line producer sets everything up. And you guys know working in production, it's amazing mm -hmm. to watch an empty room become full with everything. And that's what yeah. I got to see, how he walks into a room and decides, ah, so we could put Crafty there. We could put this department here. We could do this. And I started learning all these things. I was like, wow, how do you go to the airport and pick up a star and make sure she's comfortable? How do you set up the, the honey wagons in the right spot so that the, from this point to transportation, you get this? Like just all these logistics that I started learning, I didn't realize was going to help me out today. And while on that trip, that star and I became really close. And we were sitting one day. I was driving her, I think, to production. We were about to have a meeting. And she turns to me and she says, what are you going to do? I was like, about what? She's like, you can't just act. And I was like, oh, well, I got this idea for this screenplay one day. And I pitched it to her for 15 minutes. And when I was done, we, all were in, we both were in tears. She says, nobody's going to write that like that except for you. Now, you could pay somebody to do it, but they'll never have that feeling that you have. So I came back home after being in Utah for a month, and I was sitting at the coffee shop. I know there's a long story, but there might be some game in there. I was sitting at the coffee shop, and, which is what I did growing up in San Francisco, and I was talking to another writer friend of mine, and I told him this story. And he goes, oh, here's Final Draft. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, oh, that's the you know software to write screenplays. And I was like, okay. Took it home, let it sit for a week, and one day I just pulled it out. And I've been reading scripts probably two or three hundred of them by that time. And I was like, well, I know what a script looks like. Fade in. <laughs> seen that a million times. Interior, you know, I think I wrote Exterior London, 1964. I never want to act again. It like literally happened like that. Because <laughs> wow. what I found was the feeling, and you guys can relate to this, the feeling you get when you write. Some people hate to write. I love to write. I'm just one of those people because I've learned to embrace the good side of it. The, the physical process the of physical tapping physical process in. of writing the escapism, if you will, that it gives you. For me, that's how I feel. And how I feel is when I was on the stage or when I was working on a TV show or a movie and I was sitting in my trailer, I was working next to Blair Underwood or Vivica Fox or something on some TV show I was doing. I felt like that's how I felt every time I wrote. And I'm not exaggerating. I wrote Fade In, London, 1964. I went, that's the feeling I had. And I was like, well, I don't have to wait for this feeling to get in anymore. 
I can get it now. And so I immediately embraced that. Long story short, a year later, finished the script, sent it to Sundance, out the whim, and it made it to the final cut on the first draft. And I was like, hmm, wow. Sat down with another mentor friend of mine. He said, Hilliard, study this craft. Learn how to do this. What are you going to do about acting? He says, I'm done. He says, really? You know, I was making a pretty good fee at that time. And he says, then if I were you, take two years, study with everybody you can. And since then, at that time, I think I took two years, Truby, McKee, uh, Jack Epps, Carl Iglesias, I mean, everybody, Pilar, everybody. And I started figuring out my own way of writing and using different stories and different different methods and how they incorporated and just who I am. And I started finding my voice and scripts started getting better. And I started adding to them and then people started hiring me and, you know, the rest is history. So, what do you feel are the sort of important steps of getting work as a writer from kind of outside the traditional route of being an assistant or winning X or Y competitions? Well, I could tell you what I did and then I could tell you what I would do now differently, if that helps. What I did was the first script I sold was this horror movie called Blackout. And a few years later, came out and I started getting on all these panels, right? Which is what they do. It's a small little horror movie. It wasn't a big deal, but it was a produced project and it got me some play. So I was on a panel with another big writer at the time and he, I heard him say, I got my first gig because I was at a party. I met a producer and out the blue, we started talking about their passion project. And I asked him, what is your passion project? He told me. I bit my tongue and I said, what if I told you I'd write it for free? And I remember that. I was sitting there looking at him like, why would you do that? <laughs> you know what I mean? And he said he felt like taking the risk. It was worth taking two, three months time to do it. Now, this was a big producer. I'm not telling you to do this with Joe Schmo. I'm telling you to do it with somebody you know who's had some projects. Every single producer, director, writer has a project they have not written yet that is a passion project that they're dying to do. Every one of them. Your job, if you do what I'm saying, is to find out what that is and to get yourself in a position to be the one who writes it. Sometime, unfortunately, for free. But what you do is something I taught myself. You make an agreement with them. And in the agreement, you send them an email. In the email, you break down everything you guys have talked to. You guys go to lunch, you go to the office, whatever. You talk about the terms, whatever the hell you guys are going to do. And then you send them an email. You say, great conversation we had. Based on our conversation, here's what we agreed to. And you go back. You guys have probably done this. You backstep. We talked about these terms. We talked about this. I'll write this for you for free. If you agree, if you ever sell it, we do it. Writer's Guild. If we ever do this, we do this. You just put everything down in terms. If you agree, say yes. The only thing I ask for is full access to you. Now, they're busy, some busy producer, right? But you want access to them because it gives you a chance to be able to reach them whenever you need them. The secret to it is now you're a part of their family. Because I've called you at midnight. Because I came over to your house when you guys were having dinner. And then all of a sudden I sat down and had dinner with you. You know what I mean? So what you start becoming is important to them. So there's a double reason for this. See, people are going, why are you doing this for free? You're building a relationship with some big wig producer. Next thing you know, you've written a script. They may or may not have sold it. But if they do sell it, guess who gets to be that writer? It's you. And the other thing you've developed, instead of just showing up with a script and here's my script, they now trust you. They love you. They're going to make sure you're on board. So a lot of people miss trying this thing that I did and it worked for me. 
And I also asked them when I sent them that email, do not tell anybody I wrote this for free. Tell them you hired me to write this. I need to be able to tell people you hired me to write that I wrote this. Only you and I know this. So your next friend who you, who loves the script and they read it, you tell them that I, you hired me to write it, et cetera, et cetera. And then it became that thing. And then their friend hired me. And then their friend hired me. And then their friend, you know, here I am now, 26 projects in. People just keep asking you to do stuff. So that's what I would do. A lot of people wouldn't do that, right. but it's the risk that you take. You got to believe in yourself. Yeah, it's really you know? clever. You yeah. said that you would do something a little bit differently this time around if you could okay. change things. If, if just somebody just asked me just the other day, if I were a writer now, now mind you, this is almost 20 years ago. If I were a writer now, we didn't have Blacklist 20 years ago. We only had Blacklist it was about four or five years now. I mean, as far as the, that you can actually submit. The website. The yeah. website. I would write a kick-ass script that I thought was kick-ass, and then I would submit on a Blacklist. And here's why. Here's what I learned. A friend of mine is a former big showrunner who you would love because he's a comedy guy. But he and I clicked because we, we were working on the show together that we were developing, and I brought him in because he was going to run the show and then we brought him in just to punch it up so we could do like a reading of it. And he and I just clicked, right? And I sat down with him one day and he said, Hilliard, I have the script I want you to read. Keep trying to get my agents to do it. And he's with TA. He's like, they will not read it because it's like a Fargo type of script. He says, this is a passion project I want to do. I went ding, 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 ding. He says, but they won't even take a look at it. Well, you just take a look at it and tell me what you think. So I read it. I went through it with a red pen. I'm very anal. And I gave him real honest notes. What moved me was this is not the guy who did that comedy show that I saw on ABC for the last eight years. This is a guy who wrote this movie, which is completely different tone. And I went, I love this voice. If we could just change this and this and this, this will be something different. So he went back, fixed it, sent it to his agent. They won't read it. I said, put it on the blacklist. See what happens. And I'm not even lying a little bit. He puts it on the blacklist. Two, two weeks later, he gets a nine and an eight, I think, or something like that. Two weeks later, he gets a call from some production company saying, hey, we'd love to read it. About a month later, they have an option. About a month or so later, they have a date when they want to start shooting this project. Hmm. I'm not exaggerating. And that was a feature. That was a feature. Now, this is somebody going from half-hour, three-camera sitcom comedies writing a crazy weird Fargo-esque type of a movie and getting it done. And what did he do? He dropped his agents, <laughs> you know, <laughs> went somewhere else, you know, and reinvented himself. He said yes. So that's the thing that I would do differently. If I were a young writer, I would submit to the... It's just the fastest, easiest way you'll find out where you are. Now, you're also a producer. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the similarities and differences with being a writer versus a producer? Sure. The similarities and the differences between being a writer and producer... I can tell you this, producing helps you understand how to edit because there's something about being on the set, which is why we all do a table reading, right? You do a table reading as a writer so you can hear your words, so you can hear rhythms, so you can hear tones, so you can hear, oh, is that scene dragging? Oh, is that not working? Is it, oh, we haven't seen Judith's character in seven pages, you know, whatever. You just, you can hear things that you don't hear when you just simply read it sometimes. So being a producer has taught me a few things because I also direct. I direct out of necessity, just so you know. The, the three or four things I've directed have only been because I needed to. People say, Hillier, we have this project. We lost our director. You're the producer. We don't have time. So I'll step in, right? 
Usually I'm like, bring in some other producer, some other director who really wants to direct, let them do it, which is why I don't act anymore. Let, there's plenty of other actors who look like me who could do it. I don't want to be that dude. I'm better being a producer for you. So where I'm going with that is one of my producer friends, the same producer who told me to take two years and learn, is the same producer who's probably the biggest TV producer in town, told me. He said, Hilliard, start producing. The director's going to hate you for this, but they're going to love you for it too. I want you to stand by Video Village every day, and I want you to watch everything. I don't want you to say a word until you see something important. You pull that director aside and you say, love what you're doing. This is going awesome. Have you thought about this? In a cool way that makes it feel like they thought of it. And I can't tell you how many projects I've saved a director ass because I gave him a suggestion to fix something, right? It's the only time I speak. I'm not ever stepping in going, oh, no, we can't do that or we can't do this. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, have you thought of this, right? And I do it in a really cool way. I'm full of energy and I'm funny and all that stuff. And they ended up changing it. And every single time they turn and they go like this. What happens is by day three or four, they start going, so what do you think about this? Right? They start gaining your trust because they realize he's not in my way. He's here to help me. One of the things that I do that's really helped me on an independent level, because I'm not usually working with millions of dollars, I'm usually working with a hundred or $200,000, is if I hire you, Nick, to direct my project, and I hire you, Alex, to star in the project, about a week out, I personally call both of you and say, hey, so when we're on the set and we're in a crunch, what do you need on the set that's going to keep you calm? And I'll say, for instance, when I'm directing a project, here's what I need. I need a hot chocolate from Coffee Bean, and I need some red vines. That soothes me, right? Now, what I'm giving them is something that I can handle, something that I can have a PA go get, and on the day we shoot, we show up on the set. First thing in the morning, I show up to wherever you are. I go over to Crafty. I get the things in a bag that I told them to separate, and I bring it over to you. And it looks like it came from me, right? Giving away all my secrets. <laughs> But I gain their trust immediately. I give them what they ask for. I'm saying, look, I'm protecting you. I'm saying, look, this is why actors and writers and directors have all these big writers. Because somebody's doing what I'm doing. They just have departments for that. So on a lower scale, on an indie scale, you have to do it too. So how do you make them feel like they're still special without having the big budget to give them an actual trailer? Well, you make sure there's a room somewhere that's comfortable for them. And make sure at least they have a chair. And make sure at least they have their hot chocolate and, you know, red vines. You yeah. know what I mean? But those are things I can handle. You're so, making them a promise and you're delivering on it. And I'm delivering on trust, it immediately. You know? yeah. And they constantly want to keep working with you. They feel like they're being taken care of. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I know I probably haven't answered your question about how they... What was your question? Something about how they what? Just kind of from your perspective as a writer, mm-hmm. how does that role change once you become a producer? And does that kind of teach you more things about writing and vice versa? Um, it's taught me a lot about simplifying, simplifying things. Whereas when you're a younger writer, you have a tendency to want to over-explain or overdo all kinds. For instance, in the pilot that I'm writing right now that I wrote that we're about to go shoot next week, there's a moment where our lead character has a daughter and originally, he, it's based on his real life. He actually has two daughters. In order to simplify the script, we actually never see his two daughters. So there's a moment where he gets a call from his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend who has the daughters, and we see a picture of the two girls. We simplified it by giving him one girl now 
and we never see her at all. But we keep implying that she's there. For instance, he's supposed to watch her one night. He shows up at home. His ex is all upset. He's late, of course. He ends up watching her, wakes up in the morning, realizes he's late, and calls out to her. When we pick up later, he's walking away from the school. He gets a text from his ex going, did you drop her off? And he's like, oh, yeah, but we know he's late, right? He lies to her. A younger writer would have shown all that. You see what I mean? What I've learned now with producing is, do we have the budget to bring in a little girl and to have her only for three or four hours or seven hours or whatever the hell? But as a producer, I figured it out. So now I know how to save more money is just not to show her. And, and implying and then, it also makes implying it. Implying it. You know she's there because she's talked about, she's shown in the photo. So I'm not ignoring her. We have to get somebody to do the photo, but that's easy. You're only putting exactly what you need in your story only to make it work. Only putting what you need to keep the story moving forward. So if that makes sense, that's some of what I learned. I'm kind of curious about your own writing process because you previously mentioned this idea of maybe you're going to be writing the first script for free for this producer uh, and, and so on. But how do you sort of come up with ideas? Is it taking IPs? Is it asking people around you what they need? How does that work for you? I'm, a, I'm an extremely good listener, which I'm sure you guys have gotten even better just doing your show, whether you're listening to each other or whether you're listening to a guest kind of can't help and you've got you've hosted all kind of panels and everything so you, <laughs> you kind of can't help but to be that type who tunes in and and like i think i'd ask that you guys asked me a question i forgot what it was you immediately remember what it was <laughs> even though it was six minutes ago you, you just you hear operative words you know mm-hmm. what i mean and so there's there's something to that because i'm such a good listener a word can spark an entire story i'm sure it's the same for you i'm constantly listening to people's conversations, listening to other podcasts, reading. So I'm, I'm constantly inspired by things. There's something to knowing who you are and the type of writer you are that, that will do one of two things. It will keep you working if you really know who you are and where your strengths are, or it will keep you from working if you know who you are and who your strengths are. Some people are like, dude, I'm comedy. That's my thing. And I'm like, great. So I can't use you for anything else other than that instead of i'm really really good at comedy and i have a little but i'm i i guarantee you that if i was in a room for thriller i think i would nail it at least i see some inspiration at least i see some oh at least i'm willing to try it you know what i mean like i would never tell you that i can't do something i don't care what genre is never and i've done them all right and it's because here's an example and i don't know if i told you the guys this story when you came into my office but so I was sitting in my office one day last year, and I hear a knock at the door. You see, I leave my door open all the time, right? And I have a cute little office. And I get a knock on the door, and I look over, and there's this guy standing there. And he's like, oh, my God, your office is so cute. What do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a writer, blah, blah, blah. He sits down. I said, oh, have a seat. He sits down. We start chopping it up. Next thing you know, he pitches me just this premise to this new zombie movie he wants to do. And he's a producer in one of the, one of the buildings on the lot. And he tells me this big, fantastical idea for the zombie movie, which isn't in my lane. So I pitch him back how I would do it in my style, which is more grounded, more 28 days later. And he immediately clicked to it. He was like, oh, that's different. I was like, yeah, see, now you believe it. Before, they all were superheroes. They all were Wonder Woman. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) Now, instead of a whole army of samurai, there's only 10. And now they all get picked off to who's this, who's the final one. It's the one you least expect. You know what I mean? 
et cetera, et cetera. So I started pitching them back for 15 minutes what that story would be. I got up on my feet from having been an actor and gave them five different types of zombies. I said, what type of zombie do you want? It's like a zombie. I'm like, no, there's a bunch of different ones. <laughs> Let me give you Z Nation, right? Yeah. Let me give you 28 Days Later. And I literally acted him. He was like, oh. And he said, well, what if we combinated World War Z and 28 Days Later? Then we use that zombie. I said, now, we have, now we're talking, right? So you have to know your lane. I know my lane. I know exactly what my lane is. I know where my strengths are. I could be writing a two and a half men script and you would still hear my voice in it somehow. You know what I mean? I can't tell you. I just wrote, <laughs> as you guys know, I wrote the Black Wall Street movie. And people are always like, I, I hear you all over the place. You know what I mean? Because you have to learn how do you incorporate your own little isms is what I call them, mm. you know, inside of it. I come up with stories because of usually it's something I heard or something sparks me in that way or it's a spin on something else. I get a lot of compliments about pitching when I pitch because I'm really good at always telling people a story from my childhood and it could be horror, drama, comedy, history, whatever. I probably have heard 1,400 pitches in my life, and six of them I really remember. And they're only because people come in going, man, when I was a kid, my mom used to do such and such. And they would start telling me the story about how their mom made these, the most amazing cookies. And from that, they would say, and that's where I transitioned into the story about this woman who became like Martha Stewart. You know what I mean? But it always starts with their childhood. And what people don't realize is if you go back to your childhood and tell somebody a story about something in your script, I immediately am thinking about how many more stories do you have? And I'm not thinking about how can I get John August to rewrite this? <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm with the, that's, that's the truth. And the same thing with that zombie script I'm telling you about. I said, I, let me tell you a story. And I told him the story about being four or five years old and seeing the original Night of the Living Dead sitting in the back of the van looking out the window and just like, oh my God, you know what I mean? And, and the wonder, and I remember when Jaws came out, and I just started lining up all these stories, but being a kid, and, and admiring it, and loving it, and dreaming it, and being afraid of the water still to this day because of this movie. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I told him that story, and he could not want to hire me. He, he saw I had more stories. There was no reason to bring in any other writer after talking to me. And that's where younger writers go wrong. They just, they pitch you their story, and you say, I can do it. Instead of going, here's my take on how we'll do it. Flip it for them a little bit. Sometimes they don't have it all fleshed out. You know, I've been given full-on outlines and here's exactly what we want to do. And I'm like, mm, no, it's good. But here's what else we could do. Here's how I would turn it up if you had me write it. You know what I mean? Don't be afraid to do that. So yeah, You're establishing that personal connection to it. And like you said, making them think that this is the only person who could write this. Period. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, I like to watch um, Million Dollar Listing. I don't know if you guys ever watched that million dollar list. In New yeah, York. The, yeah. The New York one specifically, they are just beasts. <laughs> and Frederick is like the guy who sold more than anybody ever. He does like a billion last year, but he is just like, he'll sit down with somebody and they were like, great. Well, we're glad you came. Um, we're still considering other people. And he's like, um, I'm not leaving until you hire me. And he said, let me explain to you why. And he will go in about, I sold the house right next door. I did this. I did. We need to be doing the same thing, mm -hmm. but we don't think we can, but that's what we can. You go there with where your strength is. You know what I mean? And that's what I do. I go in there going, oh, no, I'm not leaving until I get this job. I don't say that. I just make them think that. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'll explain to them why they need to hire me. That's the key that I think that is missing for a lot of younger writers. They're so 
trying to get the job that they're not getting the job. And you touched on that personal voice in the writing as well when it comes out on the page. Mm -hmm. How do you think that younger writers or newer writers can really find their voice and develop it and then make sure that it's showing in their work? First of all, I spend a lot of time reading scripts. I mean, some of the best scripts and some of the worst scripts. I'm more attracted to what I see in the action than I am sometimes even in the dialogue. If you can color your script with, and I don't mean like over poetry and, you know, and all the metaphors and yeah, I just want it to be really slick, if that makes sense. If you can make it sexy and slick to me and keep me curious from page one, you can tell somebody has a voice. I can keep you curious in a comedy. I could find a way to make it so that you're like, what the hell happened right there? It's just a button. I know it needs to land right at the end of the page. It's going to make you turn. How do you do that? And what I found and still keep finding, and I don't know if I told you guys this story about how you were asking me about my writing process, and my writing process is this. You guys both have your computers up. If you were standing behind me right now and I was sitting at my desk writing, I'd have the script up that I'm writing. I'd have the outline to the next script I'm writing. And I'd have minimized a script I wrote six or seven years ago. Because we all grow every single day. So imagine you guys have been writing for a long time. You pull out a script you wrote six years ago. You're not that writer anymore. Even though you think it was kind of good back then, you'll read it and be like, what the hell? You know what I mean? I don't even talk like that anymore. You know what I mean? And that's voice. Because sometimes, like I said, descriptions are like my favorite thing. I like to really describe things in cool ways. Whether it's the way the moon looks, whether it's the... You, the, the redness on your beard and the way you wearing your glasses lowered and it kind of you can barely see over your eyeballs I like to describe it in a way that makes you feel like you can see the person and I want my reader I write for the reader I don't always write for the producer because they're looking for two different things the reader is a person you have to get through first I don't care if you're going to a production company I don't care if you happily know freaking Bruce Cohen which I do he ain't reading it Somebody else is reading it, and then somebody else will read it, and then he'll read it. So you have to write for the reader first. A lot of people miss that. They think, oh, I know such and such. They're going to read it. Sometimes they do, but very rarely they don't. They don't have time. You send me a script, I'm not going to read it. My assistant's going to read it. And if I like it, then I'll read it. And that's what all of them do. They just don't. They only have one. You only have one gatekeeper with me because I'm a small company. Other companies have several because you guys are gatekeepers. <laughs> I know you're one. You probably have a few to go through before you get to it. I mean, you, you brought up uh, earlier your work environment, your office that you're running on a lot. When we were at your office, I found it very interesting the way you sort of curate that environment. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was, I was sitting in Uber yesterday. And I was talking to a young actor. And I said, he said, oh, well, oh, you do that? Oh, great. Uh, maybe you'll hire me for whatever. And I said, let me explain something to you. One thing I hate for instance, the kid who drove me over here, who's my intern assistant, he became that because I swear to God, I probably get 10 a week from people going, hey, can you mentor me? Whatever. And I'll say, hey, we have a podcast on Sunday at 11. Come through. They don't show up. Right. What I'm looking for, I said, nobody wants to mentor you. Nobody. What they want is somebody to show up and be like, hey, guys, uh, can I just sit in and watch you guys? You guys need anything? You know? Oh, did you drop it? I'll pick it up for you. That's what we want. We want somebody who comes in and is like, oh, your guest didn't have a water. Can I go get it for him? That's what I'm looking for. That's the person you want to mentor. I always say the, the best assistant 
or, or, or intern or PA is a person you drop something, they pick it up. That's the person. So my office, I have that office because I invest in my career, right? I used to have an office at Universal for a minute with another project I was working on. And that producer taught me. Actually, the same producer I'm working with on this pilot. Same producer. My, probably my best friend in the world. And she told me, whenever you get an office, get in the right place and leave your door wide open and make it look cute. So people come in and make it like I'm looking around your office. I see a lot of you. I'm in the, your apartment. We're sitting, here, <laughs> we're sitting in Alex's apartment. I'm like, okay, you got all kind of in here. <laughs> but I see a TV guy in here. I see you can't throw shit away. Uh, <laughs> but do you have a roommate? No. This is all you with all yep. this crazy stuff in here? Okay, interesting. Uh, <laughs> but it tells me a lot about, I see you've traveled. You know, obviously you're from France, so you, of course, <laughs> you've been around the corner. So my office is about investing in myself. I got this assignment to write this project a year and a half ago. And I was like, how much am I making? Yeah, okay, I can afford another office. I want one at the lot, right? Now I looked around at Paramount and Raleigh and a couple of other studios and I was like, the lot feels right to me. So I went to the lot and the rest is history. I've been there a year and a half and I've gotten four writing assignments just from having my door wide open. So that was worth the investment alone. That, that was about investing in myself. And a lot of people are like, oh, seven, $800 a month. I'm like, that's just rent. But you're going to get it back if you even get one. Imagine over a year and a half and you get four. Those odds are really good. And two of those people have hired me twice on, on separate things. Those are just the four people who people walked in my door. What I'm doing is putting myself out there. When I produce projects, even if it's a small $200,000 project or whatever, I make sure that it says in association with Hill Dog Productions because I know I'm not making a lot of money on it. It's about branding yourself in some sort of a way where people know that you're needed, when people know that you're worth something, you know? And people know that when I do something in TV, like here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Like I've been on, I was co-EP on this TV show last year, right? Small show for Sony. It was on the Go90 network. They never aired it yet that I know of. And we did 24 episodes. And that show was a big learning curve. I hate to put this out to the universe sometimes, but I, I just have a feeling that you, sometimes you know exactly what your path is. And you know exactly what's going to happen to you. I've predicted since the day I started writing, I probably will never be a staff writer from day one. I said, I probably will write a script and it'll get sold and I'll come in as some sort of producer level writer, whatever. Or something will happen and one of my friends will bring me in because I produce so many things, they'll need me on the show and I'll come in as producer. I just have always seen it. Fast forward last year, last August, a friend of mine who's on the edu education committee at the Writers Guild came over to my office. We were sitting, chopping it up. He's like, well, the reason I came here is, got to be honest with you, I need a number two. I was like, number two? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I got this new show. It's not big, but it's small, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I was like, I'm in. Total comedy. Not me. But I didn't say no. I know what my strengths are, though. My strengths are keeping us in order. My strengths are, are having the ability to keep us on time. My strengths are you can send Hilliard to the set, right? My strengths are I can handle the whole production while you go and just handle the room. There's so many different things that I can do 
that are going to open up time for you so you don't have to do other things. So I knew that I was going to get in if I experienced that that way. And so all those years, why I'm always telling everybody, do those short films, do your little music videos, do whatever, because, so check it out. Let me give you an example. So a few months ago, we're having a black committee meeting at the Writers Guild, and I was running the, um, the meeting because Lena Waif, who's doing um, The Shy, is busy, and then Michelle Amore, who's the other co-chair, were busy, so I was running the room. So I noticed in the corner after the meeting, there was these two writers who were sitting there like by themselves. I'm the type of dude. I'm like, hey, you know, who are you? Blah, blah, blah. They're like, oh, we write on the Dr. Phil show. And I was like, really? Dr. Phil? She's like, yeah, well, that's Union. I was like, oh, I didn't know. Great. Well, welcome. Blah, blah, blah. And the girl kind of looked and like she didn't want to say it. She says, I'm a little kind of embarrassed to be here because we're not really writers, but we want to. And I said, really? I said, yeah. And I says, um, so I noticed they didn't feel worthy of being there but they're in the union. And I said, can I tell you something? They said, yeah. And I says, do you know you guys are probably more far advanced than most of the people in here right now? They said, like, really? Like, why? I said, what do you do over there? She said, oh, I produced the whole, you know, this segment or whatever. We go out and we do the man on the street. We do this, we do this. And I said, oh, so you kind of co-produced the show. She said, yeah. And I asked him what he does. He said, oh, I do similar things. We work in the same department. I do the editing. I do this. I said, what are you worried about? <laughs> I said, let me tell you the advantage you have. If you came into my room to staff on a show, I know. Now, mind you, we all know you already have a co-EP who could do all that stuff. We already know that. But here's what people don't always think about. By the time we get to episode 10, half the room is gone. So we need people who can still handle stuff in the room. And I might need to send them a set because I'm busy in the room. That people are missing that point. But but if you break down your whole staff to just people who only have been in the room, no, I can't send anybody. So now I have to go. So who's going to run the room now? So those are things that people don't always think about that they don't use as a selling point. you know. And they're both with big agents. I, mean, I found all that, all that information. They're like, oh, really? I was like, use that. Just use the fact that if number two can't do it, I can do it. At least find your angle and what can make you better. The fact that you're over the Dr. Phil, you guys probably know a lot about therapy. You probably know a lot about whatever. So use those things as ammunition. We don't always see those things. You know, I don't I don't always know what my strengths are as far as like working on a law show or working on a doctor show. But if I went into one of those meetings, I would tell you about like how many surgeries I've had. That's where I would go. I would tell you about, you know, a time when 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 I had to sue somebody. Those are the things that I use. People don't they don't realize the ammunition they have because they're not, they didn't go to school for it. But when you do this and you sit back and you listen to hundreds and hundreds of pitches, you start to figure out what people are talking about that you remember. And they're telling you remember stories. And those are the things that I click into. Those are the things that I'm always telling people back. When I did that, um, that show and the, the, the EP asked me to come in and be as number two, I still had to meet with the studio. Walked in there. Of course, they were excited. It was a black dude, right? The star of the show was a black dude who was gay. Black, <laughs> gay dude, duh. So I sold that. And I said, you need somebody in the room who's going to protect him. And it's not going to be this white dude. I love you, but no offense. Not going to be you. And he's like, oh, you're right. That's why I'm brought you in. But I had to call out the truth, right? So that they would see where my strength was. You need somebody in there who's making sure that these people write his voice to him. Even though I'm handling most of the production stuff, I'm still in the room. So I'm the one making sure you guys aren't doing something more. Because I can tell you how many scripts. I'm like, nope, not doing it. 
Nope. <laughs> oh, it was so funny. Now it's funny to you. <laughs> not funny to me, and it's not going to be funny to him. I'm not even going to let him see it. So that's where my strength came in. So your job when you go into these, especially your showrunner meeting, you're selling yourself. What is your strength in the room? And and you got to know what it is based on what the show is. He's going to already have a number two, so you're never going to be that. You know, So you have to find out what is going to be your thing that makes you separate from everybody else. And I guarantee you it's something in your past. There's something interesting about the fact that you live in Canada and Australia. and You've traveled. There's something interesting in the fact that you came from France and the fact that you've been on the Internet since the beginning. All these things are interesting to people. And, and, but if you gotta, you got to tap into that and to see what the weakness is in the room. And you don't always know, but by your strengths makes me judge what I think your strength is, if that makes any sense. Do you consider it also from the perspective of the, the content of the show as well, if that makes sense? Yes. For instance, I wrote a passion project of mine a few years ago, probably like five, six years ago. There was a singer um, back in the 70s and 80s named Sylvester, who was a black gay disco singer, queen, right? And I mean, love, 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 love this story. So I just wrote it. I wrote it around the time that Dustin was writing Milk, because I would sit across from him when he was writing Milk and I was writing my thing. He's actually the one who encouraged me to do it. Because I was like, I'm not going to do it. There's like so many other people talking about doing Sylvester. And I was like, he's like, yeah, but there's like all these people talking about doing milk. Who's who's first? That's your job. And that script has gotten me so many jobs. Hasn't been produced. Hasn't even been optioned. But it's gotten me so many jobs because of the content inside of it. It is, one, it's a black story, right? Number two, it's historic. Number three, it's a gay story, but it's an underdog story. Everybody relates to that. So you have several elements in your story, and that's what makes you decide like what, like when your agent says, hey, you know, Nick, we got this show, give me your pilot. You're like, well, what's the show? Oh, it's a drama. I got a great drama, right? Here it is. Oh, it's a comedy. I got a great comedy. Sometimes you find out that even though they're doing a certain type of movie, you have a script that talks to all those themes in the movie. And that's what that script did for me. It does for me. You know, I have a couple of those scripts that, aren't even in the genre they asked me for. But it still works because it talks to the theme of whatever it is they're looking for. For instance, when, whenever I go in to, to talk to a producer about a project and they ask me about myself, first I'll tell them about who I am, how I grew up, and, you know, military kid, you know, the youngest of five, black dude in the hood, you know, grew up in a gang, skinhead mod thing, all that. I, I share all those things so they see I'm not your typical brother first. I have to let them know that. There's a little thing that happens being a black dude in this industry. We first, you guys first go in to see, let me show you how great I am. We go in to show, I'm not gonna f-ing kill you. I'm not exaggerating. We have to let you know, I'm a good dude. I'm not gonna stab you in the back. I'm not gonna f-ing wanna fight you. We have to put up all these other things to make you know we're okay before I start pitching you how good I am and all that other stuff. There's a whole nother thing I have to go through. And mainly it's because um, one of the things I like about you guys is we're at, you guys are at that age where you have so many different types of friends. When you're 50 and, and above, for the most part, your friends are who they are now. You guys' age and you're, you see how still in your 20s? You guys are much in a diverse era, you know what I mean, that you grow up in. Most people my age and older, and I'll be 47 this year, are, are not from that. So you have to learn to come in the room, let them know 
I'm an okay person to be with for 16 hours a day, whatever the heck. And then here's who I am. Like, I don't come in with my pants hanging down. And you know what I mean? I'm just a neutral canvas, if you will. And so, like, I didn't go to college. I didn't graduate from high school. So what are my strengths? My strengths are who I am. My strengths are the fact that I'm a, I'm a total underdog. Have you ever seen the movie Dope? No. no. You guys have got to watch Dope. Promise me you'll watch Dope. Okay. It's on Netflix. Yeah. But he is me. When you see it, you'll be like, oh, okay. Except <laughs> I was riding around on scooters and all that stuff. There's a way to to show people who you are by letting them know that I'm not going to kill you. And that's what I try to do. I just let them, I come in, I smile, they light up the room, they say, you know, and I tell them stories about me. And the more stories they hear, they realize, wow, he's a really good storyteller. There must be more. They get curious. And I make sure I leave on a high note. People don't realize what that is. A high note is when you just said some good shit. It's like, I don't want to keep y'all. Boom. <laughs> you know what I mean? And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you're like, no, nah, dude, I got I to gotta run. I got a whole nother meeting. And they respect that. You know, they know you do. They think you're on the tour or whatever the hell. You know what I mean? So. <laughs> and speaking of that, do you feel that there is pressure or a burden on you to have to tell stories that explore the identity of being an African-American man, of being a gay man, or that you have to put that into everything you do? Or, you know, how does that kind of That's a good question. You? Yeah. I think, I think there definitely is. For instance, here's a good example. About four years ago, the black committee probably had nine people who came to the meetings. Fast forward now, since the diversity has changed in the last five years, let's say in the last five years, now there's like 40 or 50 people. So people are getting staffed, as we all know. Because everybody's going, we need a black person, you know, or we need an Asian person, we need a Latino person, but nobody's bringing them back, right? So that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a room full of all these young writers who are like, hey, I'm in the guild, haven't worked in two years. So everybody always expects, you're a black writer, you must be writing black stuff. You're a gay dude, you must be writing gay stuff. Hardly do it at all, you know. Whatever the project is, the project is what it is. What I do do, I'm doo-doo. What I... (laughs) (laughs) What I, the only conscious decision I made to do when I started writing was I would always have at least one lead black person, male or female, every single project. I'd find a way to finagle them in, convince the producers to bring them in. If it's a world where they don't exist, they don't, they don't exist. They don't have to be in everything. What I hate is that they don't think we could do certain things. Never been in space, but you can write that right. I, I'm offended by people who have a problem with, oh, I'm going to get in so much trouble for this. Um, but I'm going to say it anyway because that's who I am. <laughs> um, like a lot of people at the Guild have issues with Straight out of Compton, you know, mm-hmm. written by two white people. And I'm like, look, if it's on the page, it's on the page. Like I said, they've never been to Mars, but they can write Mars. They sit there hanging out with Ice Cube and them for a year. They're going to figure it out. They're going to hear the stories. They can just copy the stuff. You know, they're, they're, they're reciting to them back and forth what happened. How can you not write it? You just have to be a good writer. I don't have an issue with them being able to write a story like that. The issue that they have is that there's not enough of people writing. Like, I just heard some bad news two weeks ago that now we are, the Black Wall Street movie that I wrote is now up against probably one of the biggest black producers in town has now just announced he's doing a Black Wall Street movie. So now everybody's running, oh my God, what do we do now? Should we stop? Should we do this? One of our stars is like, "Mm, now you guys aren't doing it. So we're like, well, we're still doing it. They're like, well, I'm not going up against him. Right. So now you start playing that whole game. And what I've found is, like Lance said, 
who's going to be first? Which I keep telling the producers. If we could do this first, we'd be great. We're going to have to find outside money now because not studios aren't going to do this. They're not going to go up against a Steven Spielberg type of producer. They're not. So your job is to find somebody to do that now because they just hired a writer. It's going to take them four to six months to write a script this big, especially to get on a level of script that I just wrote because I wrote the hell out of that script. <laughs> I'm not even going to exaggerate it. I never say that, but mm-hmm. I know I did. And he's going to have to write a badass script that's going to garner stars to want to play in it. That's the one trick I've learned how to do. We just did a podcast about Wonder Woman today. And I said, what moment in the movie? Have you guys seen it yet? Yeah. yeah that's right. I know y'all is in it. I said, what moment? Let me ask y'all. What moment in the movie do you think made her read the script and say, I'm doing this wrong? The moment that I really liked and that I, you know, almost made me tear up, even though it's you know not for me necessarily, was the, when the little girl is watching the Amazon training and she starts punching and kicking and stuff. Like, I feel like Cute. that was a really... Cute. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. Mm-hmm. What about you? Huh, that's a good question. Um, I would say either the no man's land scene or the fact that they spoiler alert, they <laughs> they kill Chris Pine's character. And I thought like the fact that her character is about uh and that's who Wonder Woman is, she's about love. And I feel like there's so many sort of dark and gritty superheroes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now especially is now the time for that, as opposed to a, a lead character who is on a deep level is truly human and it's about love. But And here's here's what I thought. <laughs> this is what everybody tripped out about. I said she knew there was gonna be a bunch of action. So that's not why she did the role. What she did the role for, in my opinion, these are the type of roles, this is the type of stuff I write. From the same producer I'm telling you about, who's a big casting director, she says, you have to write at least two or three scenes where the actor reads it and goes, I gotta do this role. You got to. It can't just be like, oh, then this happens, this happens, this it's gotta be like, then boom. I get to say, what? Oh, shoot, right? It was a scene for me when they were in that courthouse and she goes in on the, go- the, the, mm. the governor. Yeah, the, he is, the general, yeah. The general, that's the scene. It was a big trailer moment for her. She's like, I get to talk to men like this. That's what you have to write to. It's like the, you can't handle the truth. Exactly, exactly. So so you have to find those moments in your script where each and every character has a mo- main character has a big moment where they do or say something that makes them go, like, like, for instance, you guys seen Precious? No. No. I've heard very good things. Sorry. If this was a superhero movie, you'd be yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, but there's, there's a big scene in there where Monique, you know, did the role because of this one scene, hmm. which we all know. And, and so you have to learn to write those type of scenes that catch the, the reader when they read it. They're like, oh, this Chris Pine would kill this. So you mentioned this project that you have potentially running into some issues. How do you kind of deal with adversity like that? You know, writers have a lot of problems with not having steady work, losing jobs or projects, feeling like you're hitting those roadblocks. How do you kind of keep going and not give up? I'm going to tell you, I woke up, this was two Tuesdays ago today, and I saw that on deadline about this big producer doing it. I sat there and I went, wow, I never worked so hard on a movie in my entire life. This is so my life too. And I literally turned to my husband and I went, so you want to move to Scottsdale, right? I was like, end of the summer, let's just go. I literally was like at that place and I worked all the time. And I was like, I was just kind of done. And it was mainly because you keep 
at least I keep, I feel like I keep getting all these opportunities that are like right at the edge of this is about to do this and this is about to do that. And I know we all can relate to that in our own way. But when you really are at a place where you have all the elements feel like they come together, everybody who reads the script is like, dude, this could be at the Golden Globes. Everybody who reads the script is like, oh, this actor is going to sign. Oh, William Morris is interested in attaching. I mean, all these things were coming together. And so I was like, wow, finally, you know, me and the director clicked. We wrote the script through my voice and his voice. It was like all there. And I was like, what else? You know what I mean? There's nothing else. You know, the only thing that keeps me, I, I must have been, I was a little depressed for about a week. But luckily, I'm working on this project. And we're about to leave. I don't have time to dwell in it. So that's what saves me from other people who fall to it who just cuddle up, curl up on the couch and eat ice cream or something or, you know, have a drink or whatever. I immediately sat there, dealt with it for about 10 minutes, and I went to the gym and pumped it out. You know what I mean? Got it out of my system. And I was literally singing loud and trying to get my brain off of it because there's nothing you can do about it. It's a $20 million movie. How are we gonna, I can't get $20 million. I'm not that type of producer. I'm the producer who helps you from script to screen. I'm not the guy who get raises money. I'm an on-hands dude. You know what I mean? I like to hire people. I like to manage, you know? So it's not too much I can do at this point. Still trying, but I don't know what's going to happen with it. You know? You just got to keep busy and always be ready to go on to the next thing. Yeah. I don't have time to worry about it. Yeah. You know, I move on and, you know, it'd be a great sample, though. I've really written lots of those, and it's just being great samples. Could you talk a little bit about your involvement with the WGA? Sure. I know you're a co-chair of the LGBTQ community and the, the Black Writers community as well. Could you talk a little bit about your involvement in that? Uh, why is it important for you and other people to be involved in the Guild? I kind of have always been somebody who gets involved in things. If you ever see me at any of the panels or anything, I'm always sitting in the front row. And people are always like, you're always in the front row. I said, you know why? Remember I told you about that panel I did, the first horror movie I wrote? I learned that the first time I sat on a panel, I sat there and I went, oh, I can only see like the first two or three rows. And you guys have done them. So you know what I'm talking about. And I was like, oh, I need to be in the front row. Reason number one. Number two is as a black man, I don't want to sit in the back. Because we had to sit in the back forever. It's like, I don't eat watermelon. I love it, but I don't even know damn watermelon just because. <laughs> I eat some chicken though. <laughs> Shut up, bitch. Um... So I always feel like we should always get involved because a lot of people get involved in those committees because they're like, ooh, who am I going to meet? Who's going to hire me? I get involved in those committees because I want to know what's going on. I can't tell you how many of the secrets I know that are at the Guild because I'm on a committee that knows what the secrets are. Where the average Guild member has no idea how things work, I know the insides of how to get things passed to get to this, to get to that. And, and I figured that out really, really early on just by sneaking into one of the meetings and sitting down and going, oh, my God, they're telling all this. And I went to the education committee five or six years ago and I sat down and I went, is Jeff Melvoin running this? Is he literally sitting here telling us about the writer's room for 20 minutes? Like, game? Why isn't this room packed? We're getting all the information he tells the people at the showrunners program. And I was like, shoot, I'm coming every single time. I told my friends, oh, I'm not on Tuesday. I was like, okay, <laughs> I'm going to learn all that game I can get. Now, I have a relationship with Jeff. 
So now, for instance, we'll be in a committee meeting. Like I missed on Tuesday because we had another event at the same. That's another problem. Sometimes the events are at the exact same time in a different room. And because I'm the co-chair of one committee, I can't go to the other one. I was really annoyed. So now, for instance, my relationship with Jeff has been now that he trusts my opinion so much that a lot of times he'll say, like, they'll go around the room about whatever, and I'll just be sitting there like this. And he'll go, and everybody will say, oh, we should do this, we should do this, we should do this. And he'll go, Hillary, what do you think? And I'll say, so I was listening to this. I like what they said. However, if we did that, we would have a problem with this. And if we didn't go left, we should go right. And here's why. And I'd explain it. And I'd say, but everybody else seems to think that they should go. And he'll go, I think we'll do what Hillary to do. Several times. And like they'll jokingly, him or Glenn Mazzaro jokingly say something like, when are you going to run for the board? <laughs> you know, whatever. I'm, like, uh, I'm already there five days a week. You really? Another thing? <laughs> Um, but I do think I might at some point, maybe in like five years or something, if I don't move the hell out of here. So I think you need to get involved because you need to know what's going on, really. Remember, as writers, we all, even as an actor, you, your dream as an actor is to be in the, in the Actors Guild, in the Screen Actors Guild. Your dream as a writer is to be in the Writers Guild and to be on a show and to be producing and blah, blah, blah. So you finally get in there and you're not even coming. It doesn't even make any sense to I was just talking to a writer today. He's like, oh, I've never even been to any of the meetings. I don't even know any other writers in town. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, wow. <laughs> and he's in the guild. I'm like, why don't you come? Oh, I live over here. I live in the valley. I just think, oh, it's so far to get I'm like, so I ain't even trying to deal with you right now. Yeah. You don't want this. For me, that's what I just feel like you have to get involved because you need to know how things work. Personally, I'm a little nosy. That's all. What are some of those kind of resources or aspects of the guild that you feel people or writers, generally speaking, don't? know more about or shouldn't know more about um like like for instance like during the whole strike like a lot of people didn't quite understand what was really going on i mean unfortunately a lot of the strike uh, meetings that i think i went to one or two but i wasn't able to go because other meetings were on the same dang night that i had to go to or i had other events going on outside of it uh, actually a lot of it happened when we were in louisiana where we were there a couple of weeks ago when we were shooting uh, i'm getting prepped and they're missing out on a lot of the information that people are telling them. So then they're calling you going, so what's going on, whatever. I'm like, did you get the weekly mail that they send to everybody? Oh, I need to read it. Like, what you calling me for? Read it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so they just don't even take the time, you know, like, Oh, the, the, the writer's guild just sent me an email. It's like, no, it's email with information. You know, like we started the writer's guild podcast for that reason alone. Cause nobody was reading the information. So we're like, well, we need to tell them at the beginning, you know, on Thursday, this is going on, on Friday, blah, blah, blah. And then we have an interview. The, the Third and Fairfax Third podcast. Third and Fairfax, yeah. It's yeah. a great podcast. I helped them start that. So I think they should get involved to know what's going on and to, to be ahead of the game. So you understand about contracts. You understand about what the new NBA is. You understand what, if you want to have an event there, how. If you want to screen your film there, what do you need to do to do it? You know, there's just a lot of little things like that. And what are some other ways that you put yourself out there to network or even on social media and that kind of thing? How do you kind of get people familiar with you? And Well, you guys are really good at it, as I told you before. I'm horrible at it. I could be better. As I said, I'm not very good at it. I'm on Facebook and Instagram and, you know, all those under my name and screenwriters are for my podcast. But, like, we have over 100,000 people who listen to my show. And it's just, thank God, it's just word of mouth. You know what I mean? People are... If it's good, people people tune in. I'm sure you guys are learning that too. And sometimes you you would think, oh, I have this big, you know, person coming on my show. Oh, we're probably going to do ten thousand people this month. 
and you don't. And and then you have a show you think isn't going to be, and then that gets ten thousand people. Especially curious about on your end because you you brought up obviously the 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 office and the Rise Guild and mm-hmm. all these different elements. How do you sort of network and meet people in those environments? Is it just a question of them coming to you, or how do you approach them? I'm the type of guy if I if there's something I like, I'm not afraid to reach out to it. I'm just that dude. I can admit that since I've had my office there, it's been completely different with access to people because I'm um, now it looks like oh he has an office that you know how people are in Hollywood but sometimes you have to keep up appearances and sometimes it is the game you play um, but it's helped having my office there on the lot like it said it's opened doors for me to get jobs and it's opened up doors for me to get people on my podcast just because I'm on a studio lot you know it looks good I don't have an issue like we did probably a year a year and a half of my show we did and in, in the living room like you guys are doing now. You know what I mean? So it's it's just about progression. You guys have progressed from this into something else, you know, eventually if you want to. If you don't need to, you don't have to. And there's something casual about it being at home. There's something kickback about that. Except when upstairs neighbors are uh, hammering away. But, you know, we have noise on the on the lot sometimes, too. There's just nothing you can do about it. You know, I just uh, put up a disclaimer and I just keep going. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know what I mean? So speaking of your podcast, why did you decide to start that? What was the, the idea there and how long have you been doing it for? Tell us a little bit about Screenwriters Around Room. We've been doing it for about three and a half years now. We're up at episode 157 or 8 now, I think. We actually have about 170 of them, but I do a lot of bonus episodes. I don't even count them. Everybody else counts all of them. But <laughs> you see, I'm very lax about it. Um, but I think that kind of that lax is what keeps us being out there, though. And like I said... I probably have, like, on my Screenwriters RR, I probably have 1,400 people who follow us on there. So Lisa and I, Lisa Bokasha, Lisa Bokasha, shout out to her. <clears throat> We've been teaching at um, Organization of Black Screenwriters, which is another little organization that young writers of color can go to. We were teaching there. She's been teaching there since, like, the early 2000s, and I started teaching there around 2006, maybe, something like that. And it came about because I would watch her if you ever listen to the show, Lisa is brilliant. Total black girl nerd, you know, one of those girls. And she's a award-winning writer. She would get up and teach. And like I said, I've taken Truby and McKee and Iglesias and Pilar, all of them. She wipes all of them off the map. And I'm not exaggerating. She is the best teacher I've ever seen in my life. And she's a science school teacher in like some camp like every day. So she's just really good at it. So I'd watch her teach and I'd be like, wow, dude, if I could do that, I'd be amazing. So one day I just turned, I was like, one day I'm going to learn how to teach like you. You are just so good at it. She said, oh, well, just get up there. You've done all kinds of things. You could just come on up and I'll just pull you up one day. One day she pulls me up. She's like, just talk about how you did your, your film or how you did whatever, how you sold your first script. And I was like, okay. So I get up and I just start talking to people. You know what? I got a personality, so I kind of get it. Kind of do my thing. After we're done, she says, good. Now, here's what you should do. You got to recap around this time. You got to do this. You got to do that. She started giving me some game on what I need to do. Oh, that's it? Okay, boom. Got up again. And I started doing it like that. I realized eventually the years started going by. And eventually we started, we moved over to the Writers Guild. And we would have meetings at the Writers Guild. And I'd be teaching there. And what happened was I made my first film in 2009 under my Hill Dog Productions company. And it got critically acclaimed. And so... I found my voice in teaching. What my voice was, 
was to break down my scripts, not to break down Kramer versus Kramer and all those other classics. Now, I'll use a reference to it. I'll say there's a cool place in Kramer versus Kramer where Dustin Hoffman character does this. I have a script that I got to this company that has a character that does this. And then I'll break down the script and how I made it work. So I started doing that. And then I made my film and I talked about here are the problems I did when I made my film. Don't do this. Here are the things I learned from producing. Here's how you whatever. You guys wanted to get in the guild? Here's how you get in. I started giving them game. It started working for me and people started going, hey, I have this little film I'm about to do. Will you help me produce it? And I was like, well, let me see it first. Only way I'm agree, I'm, I'll read it. If I like it, you got to be open to my changes. If not, I'm not even getting involved. So it started happening that way. And here I am, 20-something projects in. That just keeps happening. People keep going, hey, would you come help me do mine? Come help me do mine. And so, and they just keep getting bigger. So I've prepared myself and gotten myself to a point where now I can handle, I mean, I honestly feel like I could run a show. I'm sure there's tons more I need to learn. I'm not even remotely denying that. But at least for what I know, I know I'm an asset. And then so what you and Lisa then just decided to. Uh, so people started asking me, like they'd watch me teach and I just did. They're like, you should be doing a podcast. I'm like, ah, podcast, I don't have time for no podcast. And then somebody said, hey, hey, I got a podcast company. Would love to have you on. You know, you'd be great. Just got to watch your language. And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) no, not interested, you know, because it takes out the realness of me. And here's my whole thing about language. I understand why you have to do it, you know, for the most part. This isn't about you guys. I'm just generalizing. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. Your audience are writers. Who are you hiding from? (laughs) You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Uh, your sponsor's telling you not to watch your... Like, I, mean, I don't understand. Writers are in the writer's room going F-bombs and blah, blah, What are you talking about? No f bomb. You know what I mean? It confuses me. So I would have this debate with sponsors. Sponsors have hit me wanting to do my show. I'm like, I'm not changing my language. Sorry. <laughs> it's not worth it. Well, I can do so on our end. It's definitely not a question of censoring ourselves as much as it is just not dealing with iTunes's special request of it being explicit or whatever it is. What is, uh, what is explicit about you? It doesn't. Uh, I mean, and especially initially when we started, we we kind of were looking at other podcasts like Script Notes, which mm-hmm. children have to do, and uh, maybe not children have to do, but specifically yeah, like, script, script, <laughs> script Notes, especially. It's like we, we we're trying to trend towards that, which is very much. Yeah, I definitely. Um, I was just telling my my assistant this morning. I was like, "Yeah, dude, these guys are are." I said they're like Script Notes, but younger and hipper. Yeah, and people say we're like script notes but the ghetto version so, you know we don't give them all the information you guys give them but i think but i think you, you guys are fun you guys are awesome so i started going well what do i need to do so i was talking to my producing partner pamela and she said well how much is it gonna cost you to get us so, well i gotta get a microphone i gotta get this i get this i gotta get blah 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 and next thing you know she wrote a check and went go get yourself and i went oh okay <laughs> so then we just started doing it in the living room at first and what it was is I wanted a vehicle that was bigger than the 40 or 50 people I was talking to, you know, once a month. And so I'm giving this game out to people all the time. But I want to be able to do it in a way that really spread the love, if you will. It's free, as we all know, you know. Like I said, I'm not taking any sponsorship at all. I could, but I don't. And I just wanted a vehicle where I could really just be myself. And myself is kind of loud and crazy. So is Lisa. So we just wanted that, and all we do is tweet it and Facebook it and Instagram it, and somehow we've gotten all these numbers of people who listen to the show all over the world. So it's been it's been a blessing. And the other thing that's important is to be on other people's podcasts. 
the number one thing I heard from other people, including Jay Moore. You know, I'm supposed to be on Jay's show in a couple of weeks. Jay was on mine, you know, make Betancourt, you know, a bunch of other people, you know, we, we, we all kind of share that whole thing. So I, I still want to get you guys on my show too. Yeah, we'd love to come up. That'd be awesome. So what's next for you? What do you see you kind of career headed? What's the long-term goal? What's the short-term stuff? Well, my goal has always been that I wanted to be a showrunner. And it's funny that the closer I keep getting to being it, the more I'm like, hmm, hmm, do I still want to be a showrunner? Of course I still want to be a showrunner. But I used to think I wanted to direct and write and produce and all those other things. Now I'm much more calling myself more of a writer-producer than I am calling myself a writer-director, producer, and all those other things. Because the same way I was telling you guys earlier that I felt like when I was an actor, I felt like there's so many more people who really come here and study to really learn the craft to be a director that would be better at it. I'm good at standing behind the video village and encouraging them, helping them with the vision before we get to set. I'm good at all that other stuff, you know, managing them, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, and I'm not putting out there in the universe that I don't ever want to direct again at all, but it wouldn't kill me. Writing and producing, never doing again, that'd be a problem. Yes, I still want to be a showrunner. I still want to run a nice three or four season show that's in the voice of something the way that I talk or do. That would be amazing. And I would love to be co-EP on a bunch of other cool shows. But in essence, I want to be J.J. Abrams. I want to, you know, I used to always say I want to be the black J.J. Abrams. I'm like, no, I want to be J.J. Abrams. Mm-hmm. I want to be able to do movies and TV whenever I want to. And because I know how to now, I really feel like I can. Ten years ago, wasn't as accessible with how you make movies and TV today. But the way it is today, and like I said, you can. I know how to make a movie look like a million-dollar movie for $100,000. So imagine if I had a couple more um, and I can get stars in them if I want to, just because I know who I am. So it's a matter of who you are, what you offer them and how good you are. Because I've got Jay Moore and Mark Valley and all these people to do my reading because it's me. They know I'm going to treat them right. We have a beautiful, you know, setting and I took, we all had lunch and we, we spent a grip just on doing a reading. I wanted to look as professional as possible. So there's things you can do to make people feel like they want to be involved and people start talking about you. That's why I'm always telling everybody, don't just shoot a little short film and, and give everybody pizza. Make sure there's some crafty. Make sure there's a room for the actors to get dressed in. Make sure you you have some chairs just for them. Make sure people feel like, boy, I feel like I'm on a real set. You'd be amazed if you just put yourself into their positions, the things you're going to get from people back. That's one of my strengths is people don't feel like they're doing a low budget project with me it's still 40 50 people on my set on a short film people are like how do you get all these people I'm like people want to work every department they need help i have six or seven pas walking around on a short film but but that's because people want to do stuff you know because you treat them right do you have any resources be it books scripts websites whatever for anyone attempting to break in or even fellow producer writer if if i were a young writer now even, even an older writer who's just still like unsure of their voice, I would tell everybody to take classes with Pilar Alessandro. You know, that's my number one resource. Her um, book is great, too. Oh, yeah, she's yeah. awesome. The Coffee Bake Screenwriter. Yeah, she does a part two now, too. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, Jane Corsanti. I love Jane. That's my girl. Uh, what's up, Jane? Uh, <laughs> my cousin. Um, my favorite writing book is The Sequence Approach by Paul Joseph Guerrero. I think that's his name. That's basically the style they teach at USC. Actually, I advise everybody 
to learn how to write in a sequence approach because it helps you to understand. Here's the only problem with it, though. The sequence approach is kind of old. So it teaches you that every 15 minutes is a new sequence. There's like an act one, act two, and act three in every single sequence, right? The problem is movies aren't 120 pages anymore. They're more like 105, 110, 90, whatever type of script you're writing. So you have to shorten those sequences. If you can learn to master that, you'll be able to shift over to writing a TV pilot too. I figured that out years ago how to sh- I'm still writing a sequence approach even in TV. That's funny. We were literally talking about it at lunch today. No, yeah. Nick. <laughs> that exact thing. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Pilar teaches the sequence approach. Carly Glazes, Jack Epson, everybody, even John Truby, they all teach it. They just call it something different. Um, Save the Cat, same thing. It's just something. They just, they're not the exciting incident. Yeah. It's this. It's all the same thing. And then you know? uh, any lost words of advice for writers out there trying to break in? Here's what I'm going to tell you. This might get me into some trouble. If you really want to do this, this is an intense thing. Here's an example. We were just talking about this today on my podcast. Linnell White, who was one of the writers on Army Wives and um, Z Nation and some other stuff. Well, she'll finish in like a week or two the UCLA MFA. She says every one of the people in her class had to write like five, I think four to five or six scripts by the time they were done for a two-year program. So you have 30 people at UCLA who have five scripts each. Five times 30 is what? 150. That's 150 more scripts in this community next month up against you. See what I mean? That's at one college. All the colleges are finishing right now. That's just college. It's not including the people who you see at the coffee shop. It's not including the people who are here hustling like you guys are every day. How bad do you want this? So if you're letting a day go by and you're bull crapping with, oh, I have writer's block, there's no such thing as writer's block. You know why? Because you can do my four favorite things. If you can't write, you can read. If you can't read, you can write. If you can't do those things, you can watch. If you can't watch, you can listen. We have podcasts now. So there's four things you can do every single day that at least moves you forward. I never have a day that I don't listen to a podcast. Which is why I've heard every one of your episodes, you know, because I'm constantly listening to something. I wake up in the morning, I just turn one on. I'm getting dressed, I got one on. Don't matter. I'm just, it's just background noise sometimes. But every once in a while, I'll stop and go, what did they say? And I hit that rewind. You know, that's some good information. What game are you going to get from somebody? And as I told the kid I was driving with in the car um, the other day who was an actor, and I said, I said, you are going up against me in general right? We are all competing against each other. But your job is to find a way to work with them so that they don't feel like they're being competed up against, right? So if I hear of a comedy thing, I should be going, Nick, dude, ABC, I just heard about this, whatever. I think you'd be perfect for it. Dude, they got this cool little sci-fi project. You'd be perfect for it. I should be doing that. I shouldn't be going, I'm not going to tell them because I got a script here. Perfect example. I know I'm taking a lot of time with this. Perfect example, a month ago, everybody was staffing. A month ago, two months ago, a month and a half ago, everybody was staffing. <clears throat> so, of course, I must have had six calls from different young writers going, Hilliard, hey, do you know this producer? Hey, do you know this producer? And I know them all. One in particular was a friend of mine who's on the LGBT committee. He says, hey, um, do you know Kevin Arkady? I said, of course. You know, he's like my brother who's never staffed me, right? <laughs> but 
That's not important. What's important is I can call them and go, hey, Kev, can I holler at you for a minute? Sometimes that's just as important as somebody working with you. So I said to him this, all right, here's what I'll do. Now, he told me, hey, I just, just met with them. We had a great meeting. Can you just put in a little word for him to say, hey, staff this guy, right? I said, all right. So I sent him an email and I blind copied the person. And I said, hey, here's what I did. You know, I said, hey, here's this guy. He said he just had a meeting with you. I think you should staff him if you, if you, if you really liked him, whatever. Now, anybody else would have said there's a space and I know him, I could just do it, right? But I, being the person I am, who's not about the crabs in the bucket, said I'm going to help him get it. He didn't get it in the end, but at least I tried to help him get it because that's what your job is, to help the other person because now he knows he has an ally who tried to help him do something. So something somewhere down the line, he's going to remember that. And the person who he went up for is going to remember that I tried to help him do it. You see what I mean? They don't forget goodness. They for, they what, what they what they want to forget is how nasty you are. If that helps, if that made any sense with anything, well, totally, totally. That's yeah. that's a big lesson in there. Absolutely. That brings us to the end of the episode. So thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. Also, my upstairs neighbor is for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs> you can get all the show notes for the episode at paperteam.co slash forty seven. You can leave us reviews at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Tracking Board's Launchpad Writing Competitions. And Paper Team listeners can save $15 off the next purchase. Just use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout to receive your discount. You can learn more about all the Launchpad's current and upcoming writing competitions by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. How about you, Hilliard? At Hilliard Guess or at ScreenwritersRR. Uh, and if you have any feedback, thoughts, opinions, uh, complaints about Alex's upstairs neighbors, <laughs> you can email them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we will be talking about Description and Prose 101. Hillier, we just talked about it early in the podcast, how interesting uh, and descriptive your prose was. It needed to be that way for a script to be compelling. Do you have any you should, more thoughts should, on this? Actually, uh, we did an episode about two, three months ago about writing actions. Mm. And actually, we read from one of my... Ooh. From that zombie script that oh, I'm talking nice. about. It's, yeah. it's badass. It's That's badass. cool. We'll let you and, check uh, it out. Yeah, yeah. And then we talk a lot about descriptions and how you should write it. And usually we do them cold. People submit to us. You know, we have a little segment we do called the don't sleep on them segment, which is like, you know, we have a little saying like, don't sleep on this or don't sleep on that. So it's like, don't sleep on this new writer. So if you guys got something you want to submit, That's cool. send it to a brother. That's awesome. <laughs> and good. on that note, we'll see you next week. See you then.